Um, it, well, in a short time, we're going to introduce Gage Jordan here, but just a little bit about who we are as a church that's just very valuable to the, to the kind of the ethos of our church. Um, we, we value raising up leaders. It's just a, it's a big passion of mine. It's a big part of the life of our church, equipping people to become good leaders and good ministers. I mean, but, you know, leaders just certainly definitely incorporate uh, ministers and future ministers, and that's why we have Blake, and, and some of you guys know Blake. He's part of our Timothy program. He started seminary um, this summer. Um, he started seminary, and he's a ministry intern. He's working with me, and he's kind of learning the inside ropes of what it means to be a pastor. But we also have Gage, who comes once a month from Conway to preach for us, and Gage is further along in that process, and um, hopefully next spring he's going to graduate from seminary and then stand for ordination in the Presbyterian Church. And so part of that process is just getting reps to preach. And Gage has agreed um, earlier this, I guess late last year, to preach for us once a month and to give him those reps and to give him opportunities to preach. Because you might not know this, but when you get your first pastorate, you know, there's an assumption, oh, you know how to preach. No, that's not how it goes. You've got to have opportunities to do this. And what an opportunity it is for Gage to do this. But he's already seasoned in it. And so it's so easy for me to just say, Gage, get up here, preach. I trust you. Go for it. Because he's done it and he's done it very well. But still, it's an opportunity for him to develop. And, and so it's, um, it's an honor and a privilege to have you here today, Gage. Um, so with that being said, I want to welcome Gage to the, the pulpit. I'll be, I'll be in the pulpit next week and, and for a good while. So the two weeks off for me has been really nice. Um, but uh, Gage, why don't you come on up. Thanks, Dan. appreciate all the nice words you said. The check's in the mail. Um, so there's that. Uh, you left your phone up here, so I'm definitely going to hack into your Facebook. Um, there is that. Uh, like Dan said, my name's Gage. I'm the, his better-looking brother with a better beard. So if you have your Bibles, if you would, turn with me to Psalm 113. Psalm 113. As you think about Conway and think about leadership in us, yes, the goal and the hope and the prayer and the begging is that I would be done by next spring for seminary. That's kind of what we're hoping for. So be in prayer for me for that. Psalm 113. Let's pray and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you for Central Press. I thank you for my friends in Little Rock. Thank you for the, the work of the gospel that you are doing here in Central Arkansas. Just pray that you would continue to expand your kingdom. Please use um, crooked vessels to make straight lines. We love you. Make much of yourself today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I had a conversation with a friend this week who um, honestly left their church Sunday night pretty distraught. They were also going through a psalm. And to kind of give you some background about this friend in particular... Um, she's had a, a series of pretty significant events in her life that kind of shape how she views things. She had both a mom and a child who had cancer and passed away in the same year. And that has, has a profound effect on how she kind of sees everything. And she was distraught because the preacher basically used the Psalms to make the argument that if you're doing the right things, that if you're checking all the boxes, that if you're um, on the righteous side of things, that good things will happen 
for you. And so she came to me this week and was like, so what about when things don't go well, right? What about when the proverbial chaos hits the fan? What then? And honestly, I sat there listening to her frustrations and thought about this psalm. It's important for us to understand the beauty and the complexity of the psalms as we we dig into the passage today. The the book was put together post-exile. So the people of God coming back from exile, they put this book of poems and songs and writings together. And it's, it's a kind of tension thread mixed in five different books of both lament and praise. And the overall theme, the overall hope, and the overall desire is that they are longing for the day when this messianic king will make the broken pieces right. The messianic king will push back evil, he will push back injustice, he will make the darkness go away, he will restore things, he will fix what is wrong in their hearts and in the world around them. And the Psalms are great because the Psalms force us to deal with our emotions. The Psalms force us to deal with our doubts. They push us to hope by reading the poetry spread throughout each Psalm. And they push us again and again to this one big idea that I want us to walk away with today. This idea that there is a God who is worthy of our worship. And as we come to Psalm 113 today, that's the big idea that I want us to understand, that there is a God who is worthy of our worship. And as we dig into Psalm 113 today, we're going to see four key things. First, we're going to see a call to worship in in the first three verses and in verse 9. And then the psalmist is going to give us three different reasons for why he is calling us to worship. First, we're going to see that God is worthy of worship because he's unlike any other. We're going to see that in verses 4 through 6. We're going to see that he's worthy of worship because he's come down to meet the poor and the needy in verses 7 through 8. And then lastly, he's worthy of worship because he gives life to the barren. So let's dig into Psalm 113. We're going to read all nine verses together. Psalm 113, starting verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. He gives the barren woman a home and makes her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm 113 is the first of six psalms in a collection known as the Egyptian Hallels. These were the songs that were sung during festivals, the the Feast of the Tabernacles, 
the Passover, various festivals because they would be sung time and time again to remember what God has done, remember deliverance, remember His rescue, to remember His work and His dwelling among God's people. And the psalm begins here today with a call to worship. Notice what it says. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Understanding that these are Hallel psalms, this psalm begins with a call to worship. In fact, that's exactly what Hallel means. It literally means to praise. So it's not just a suggestion. This is a command from the psalmist to praise El or praise God. It's the same when we read the word hallelujah. See, oftentimes, not in Presbyterians, and I grew up Baptist, we don't really do that. But like in other churches, you would yell hallelujah when something is good, right? When God has done something, you would praise him by saying hallelujah. And we see that as an excellent exclamation. But in fact, it actually is also a command. It was a command to praise Yah or praise Yahweh. And the psalmist calls for this praise three times in a row. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Every time that you see this sort of repetition from the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, but particularly in the Hebrew, when you see this sort of repetition time and time again, you, you should think an it command that he is wanting you to see that this is important. This is a call that everyone everywhere praise the Lord. This is why we begin the liturgy the way that we do. This is why every liturgy that you see in the Presbyterian Church starts with a call to worship. Lance, one of our deacons at Christ Church Conway, and he often leads a lot of the worship services, he often says this same phrase when he starts the service. He says that it's God who calls you to worship. That this isn't just something clever that we decided to come up with on Sundays because we didn't like golf. Like this is a command and a call from the creator of the universe who demands and deserves our worship. The God of the universe who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it calls us to worship him. That's why the psalmist kind of gives us a title in this. Servants of the Lord. That he's God, the highest of all authorities, and as such, everything under him serves him. That he's the biggest deal, that he's the most important, that he's the one worthy of praise. And we are subjects, servants to the Most High God. God spoke everything into existence. So he is both creator and highest of all authorities. Everything that exists now, everything that has ever existed, and everything that will exist happens because God says so. You breathe because God says so. If God decides otherwise, you stop. Everything that you have, everything that you will do, your job, your house, your car, your family, happens because God says so. The sun rises and sets because God says so. Things exist simply by the word of his power. And it's because of that reality 
that whether you acknowledge that truth or not, we are all accountable to Him and we must worship Him. But the psalmist doesn't want you just to arrive there out of compulsion and out of like, well, I'm going to do my duty now. I've got to worship this God. He wants you to get there and understand the reasons behind it and do it from a place of love and admiration. He wants you to see that this God doesn't only demands and calls for this worship, but He is worthy of doing so. And that's why he puts this time stamp on it when he says, continuing, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord be praised. There are so many reasons why this God that we come to worship every single week is worthy of worship. He's worthy of our affection. He's worthy of our gratitude. He's worthy of our recognition and our thanksgiving. And the psalmist wants to just give you three key reasons to convince you why he's worthy of worship. The first we see, starting in verse 4, he's worthy of worship because he's unlike any other. Notice what it says, verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? The first reason that God is worthy of worship is that He's not like you and me. We're not worshiping someone with faults and brokenness like we have. We are worshiping the perfect, holy, righteous, all-powerful one. This is what the theologians like to call, they use a really big word called transcendence when they talk about God. The idea that He is high above the rest. In other words, He reigns above us all. Notice how the psalmist describes him here. High above the nations. His glory is above the heavens. He is seated above the heavens and the earth. We have a friend that uh, works for a translation team in Nepal. And we sent one of our elders and his wife to go visit her uh, recently. And they came back and Rob tells the story that every day... At 4, 4.30, and 5 a.m., you hear these little bells that start ringing. Ring, 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 which would cause me to want to murder someone. But they start ringing these tiny bells continuously. And they do that because they're trying to wake their gods up. They're petitioning them. If they ring them enough, and apparently these gods have snooze buttons because they have to do it at 4, 4.30, and 5. But they have to continuously push. And think about it for a second. I promise you, my wife and my friends back here can attest to you. If my deity was dependent on Gage getting up at 4, 4.30, or 5 to do anything we would be greatly in trouble. But this isn't a new development. In the ancient Near East, each nation would imagine that their God was better than the other gods. This is part of that exchange, if you've ever read the back and forth trash talk that goes on between David and Goliath. 
This is part of that exchange that Goliath is promising, after I destroy you, you're going to be fed to the birds, and my God is going to do this. And David's like, yeah, but you ain't met Yahweh. It's coming for you. I don't even need to throw these hands. I just got these stones, right? Like, so it's like, so it's like this back and forth trash talk because of this idea that their God in their country was it. And this is not unlike what we experience now, even with Muslims who have to pray directionally because Allah only hears geographically for their prayers. This God is not like that. This God isn't the God of Israel. He isn't the God of the U.S. He is the God high above the nations. He never sleeps. You don't have to wake him up. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't need persuasion of bells and humans to convince him. And he's not just a God that hears you directionally. He sits far above the heavens and the earth. And when Isaiah encounters him, the only thing that Isaiah can see is the train of his robe. And that train fills the entire temple. Angels can't even see him. They had to cover their face. This is the same God that when Moses wanted to see him, God tells him, you can't. You could not see me and live but I will pass by you and you can see my glory. And that glory was so magnificent that Moses had to veil his face so he didn't blind the people of God when he came off the mountain. This isn't a God that's absent from the affairs of men or one that needs to be begged like when Elijah was mocking the prophets of Baal. He sees all. He sits enthroned above the heavens and the earth and looks down. And whether we acknowledge him or not, it won't change the fact that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the God that we are dealing with. He's not like any other And I tell you, that's some of the best news that I could share with you today. But he isn't a God that's just absent or distant or so high above everything else that he can't relate. We see the psalmist go further to show us why he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship because he comes down to the poor and the needy. Let's look at verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. This isn't a God who sees the brokenness and sees the evil around him and ignores it. This isn't the God of a deist that just sets things in motion and let whatever happens, happen. We have a God who has come down. And he comes down to the poor and the needy. And this is beautiful for a number of reasons. First, the immediate context. The people of Israel would have felt defeated. Time and time again, they find themselves under the rule of another nation, under the impression of a ruler. 
And the only thing they can long for is one day this messianic king is going to come and they're not going to be under the hands of another ruler again. So it matters when you hear that this God looks down and lifts up the poor and the needy. Secondly, it speaks to the graciousness and the nearness of this God that we are called to worship. He doesn't cater to those of power and influence like we so often do. He isn't trying to hopefully network with the right humans to get his influence and brand advanced. This God comes to those who could never repay him or bring anything to the table. And guess what? Spoiler alert, that's you and me. We are the poor and the needy. We have nothing of substance to bring, nothing of impressive sway that moves him in any way, and yet this same God does what we see in places like Exodus chapter 2. He hears the cry of his people, he sees their suffering, and he knows. It's not a coincidence that the psalmist actually borrows this line and others here from another song. This actually comes from Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah, if you don't know the story, was one of two wives married to a guy in Ephraim. And wife number one has all the kids. Hannah can't have a child. And wife number one, because back then women were seen as second-class citizens, and even more so as totally invaluable if they couldn't have kids. Not a lot has changed. And the wife that has all the kids constantly ridiculed her all the time about how unworthy and useless she was. And one day, Hannah is praying, and she's sobbing outside the temple, and she's just quietly kind of praying to herself. And she's talking so low that you can't really hear what she's saying. And you just see her mouth move, and Eli, the priest, that's sitting outside on the doorpost, thinks she's drunk. And he tells her to stop drinking. She says, I'm not drunk, I'm broken. And it's God who hears the cry of Hannah and grants her a son. And that son was Samuel. And Samuel is the one who is the first to see David by direction of God and anoint him as king. You think maybe Hannah knew a little bit of what it felt like to be poor and needy? You think maybe she knew what it felt like to be in the ash heap? If you're reading from the King James, it uses the word dunghill. If you want to Google what a dunghill is, have that fun conversation over lunch. <laughs> you think Hannah knew what it was like to feel worthless, broken, hopeless, and yet this God who calls us to worship sees us in our brokenness and comes down. 
It's this same God who John in his Gospel tells us that He enters as light into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. It's this God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And John says it like this, and we have seen His glory. Glory as from the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, that no one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This God is not only one who transcends above everything else, but He's one that is also, as the theologians call, imminent. He's personal. He's real. He identifies with us where we are. And the psalmist gives us one more reason why he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship because he gives life to the barren. Let's look at verse 9. He gives the barren woman a home and makes her the joyous mother of children. To give her a home literally translates he takes one who is outcast and makes her a household. That's a trajectory change. That's life in an instant. And the history of redemption and the people of God is one acquainted with barrenness. It was Sarah who couldn't have children and to whom God promised Isaac and by extension a nation as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. A lineage that would lead to the one who would bless the nations, Jesus himself. It was Hannah who prayed for God to find favor on her and to whom God gave Samuel, the judge who would anoint King David and David who would speak with God and God would give a covenant that would lead us to a better David, Jesus. It's Elizabeth who was past her years and her ability to have children whom God gives John the Baptist the voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the path of the Lord. The forerunner who calls out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All roads bring us to Jesus here who on the night that he was betrayed took his disciples to an upper room. He sat with them and had a last Passover together. He enacted a new and better covenant to fulfill them all. With bread he told them how his body was about to be broken. And with wine he told them how his blood was about to be shed. And after eating together, they sang a hymn. Now it was Jewish custom at these festivals, like Passover, to sing the Psalms. And in particular, like I shared with you at the beginning, they would sing from this set, from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, the Egyptian Hallels. So it is highly likely that as they sat together, they sang with the, the real Passover lamb sitting among them. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? And as they sang and Jesus prepared to go to the cross, the God who is unlike any other stoops down to lift up the poor and the needy from the ash heap, to break his body 
and shed His blood to save His people from their sins, to save them from death, hell, and the bondage of Satan. It's Jesus who is unlike any other. It is Jesus who is the one who has come down. It is Jesus who identifies with the poor and the needy. And it is Jesus who gives life where there is death. And that makes Him worthy of worship from this time forth and forevermore. So, hear this command and call to worship. Praise the Lord. That's right. Father, I thank you for the Psalms. I thank you for the poetry and the call to action. I thank you that you are a God that is worthy of worship. Would you please speak to our hearts, both awaken the call to worship in those that know you and give life to those who don't. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.